millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 43, Heraclius to the Rescue. When Phocas overthrew Maurice in 602, the wider Byzantine world reacted with shock. Although there had been rebellions and mutinies over the decades, no one had any memory of an emperor being violently overthrown by the army. In the ancient world, when communications were slow, the news might have taken months to reach every outpost in the empire. Most men who held any kind of imperial office seemed to have adopted a wait-and-see approach to the new regime. Aside from Nazis in the east, we don't hear reports of other officials refusing to cooperate with the upstart emperor. Of course, most men weren't in a position to do or say anything about it. The Balkan field armies supported Phocas. With most of the precental armies deployed there too, it seems like they went along with the new regime. We know that the armies in the east were split, and soon men from the Balkans arrived there to make sure they got in line. Over in Spain and Italy, the few imperial soldiers left had their hands full with local conflicts. So that just leaves Africa. Only Africa was at peace during the first decade of the 7th century, and so the exarch of Carthage, Heraclius, was the only man in the empire commanding troops who was not otherwise occupied. We met Heraclius a few episodes ago during Maurice's war with Persia, where he served as one of Philippicus's sub-commanders. Around 600, he seems to have been sent to Carthage to become the exarch, and so must have been well thought of by his peers and presumably felt loyalty to Maurice, the man who oversaw his various promotions. But it's not this Heraclius who is about to become Emperor of the Romans. That will be his son, also named Heraclius. So from now on, Heraclius is the future Emperor, and when I refer to his father, I will call him Heraclius Senior. Heraclius was born around 575. In keeping with the chaos of this period, we aren't exactly sure of the date, or where he was born, or the exact origins of his parents. The histories suggest that Heraclius Senior may well have been of Armenian descent, and his mother probably Roman from Cappadocia. Ancient authors could be quite loose with their geographic terminology, and as Cappadocia and Armenia border one another, we can't be certain quite what ethnicity either Heraclius or his parents truly were. 
They were obviously well-to-do Romans, though, by the time Heraclius Senior was gaining important promotions in the Eastern Army. We can assume from this that Heraclius had a full Roman education, and although later courtiers were bound to flatter, we've no particular reason to doubt their description of a tall, fair-haired, broad-chested man with a thick beard who took easily to command. We don't know whether Heraclius was anywhere near his father during his time in the East, but his impressive military leadership later in life might suggest that as a teenager he got a first-hand look at conditions on the eastern frontier. Certainly he would have spent his mid-twenties and early thirties at his father's side as they governed the entire province of Africa. This would have given Heraclius the chance to lead imperial soldiers and conduct provincial administration. Nor was he alone during this time. The Heraclii were a close family. Heraclius Senior's brother Gregory and his son Nicetus had moved to Carthage with them and presumably took up posts there. Africa had been relatively quiet since 580 or so, but that didn't mean that the Exarch could realistically hope to rebel against Phocus. Perhaps 15,000 men or so patrolled the North African coast, but that was nothing compared to the European and Asian armies, who were 20,000 plus each. We don't know what the Heraclii were thinking during the first six years of Phocus's rule. Perhaps they were constantly plotting for the day when they might overthrow the emperor. Or perhaps it was something they idly considered, but didn't think realistically would be possible. The situation began to change when news of Persian victories in the east and purges in the capital began to filter across the Mediterranean. With the majority of imperial troops out of the way, and the emperor growing more unpopular, perhaps there was a chance to unseat him. When news of an outbreak of plague reached Carthage in 608, the Heraclii decided it was time. We don't actually know if Priscus, the former general and now slightly scared son-in-law of Phocus, sent his letter to Heraclius Senior before or after the rebellion began, but it may have spurred them on. As he announced his intentions to the world, Heraclius Senior took the unusual step of having himself and his son declared consul rather than emperor. The Latin-speaking elites of Carthage may have influenced this decision through the tortured logic that the power of the Exarch was derived from the old Republican idea of proconsular authority. Heraclius Senior was thereby claiming that his authority as consul, derived from appointment by Maurice, was more legitimate than the imperial office that Phocus had stolen. Coins were soon minted with father and son side by side, and the grain and tax that flowed across the sea to Constantinople were cut off. Heraclius Senior knew that this was not enough, and to ensure that the capital would rise against the emperor, he determined to transform their famine into a crisis. In the summer of 608, Nicetus, the first cousin of Heraclius, set sail for Alexandria with troops from Africa and some allied Moors. Taking the city by surprise and overwhelming the garrisons commanded by the Egyptian Duxes, Nicetus captured Alexandria. He was aided in this by various local families and a former governor of the city who were happy to lend a hand. 
Nicetus then sent his deputy Bonarchus to capture the other towns of Lower Egypt, thus cutting Constantinople off from the grain which fed its citizens. Back in the capital, I can only imagine the fury and misery the emperor must have felt at the reception of this news. The previous summer had seen the large Persian victories in Armenia and Mesopotamia, and that summer it needed the near full weight of the Byzantine army to stop them advancing further. But without Egypt, Phocas's position was unsustainable. He sent word to the governor of Syria, Bonossos, that he should take men south the following spring and retake the empire's prize asset. Last episode I mentioned how the civil war and this stripping away of troops from the east was largely responsible for the Persian breakthrough in 609. The defeats the Byzantines suffered, and the sight of a Persian army reaching Chalcedon were in part caused by the Heraclius' decision to rebel. Court historians would later do everything they could to paint Phocas as the Gorgon that Heraclius slayed, but we shouldn't forget that the Heraclii launched their own usurpation when they knew the empire was at its weakest, and the consequences for that act are not over. So, while the Persians were getting their first look at the cities of Anatolia, Bonossus led a contingent of the army of the east down into Egypt. Bonossus had a reputation for being ruthless, and soon proved it by defeating Bonarchus in battle and executing him. He recaptured the town of Niku and killed all of those who had supported the rebellion. However, Alexandria proved a step too far. Twice Bonossus besieged the city, and twice Nicetus beat him back. The second time, his army began to disintegrate, and in spring 610 he gave up and sailed back to Constantinople. While this was good news for the Heraclii, the bad news was piling up for the empire. That summer, the Persian general Shabaraz broke through the lines again and advanced deep into Syria, almost reaching Antioch. Public order began to break down in cities across the empire. Anticipating conquest by the Persians, groups of Jews in several Syrian cities lynched Christians. While in Antioch, Thessalonica and various cities across Anatolia, the Blues and Greens turned to street fighting as news of the civil war reached them and men began to jockey for favour with the potential new regime. In the Balkans, the lack of imperial response encouraged more Slavs to once again cross the Danube and look for loot or new homes. In the capital, Focus's mood was turning more poisonous every day. On one occasion, the Greens jeered him in the Hippodrome, implying he'd turned to drink to medicate his depression. Phocas ordered the city prefect to attack them indiscriminately. The famine in Constantinople was now biting, and momentum was building in support of regime change. Nicetus did not stop in Alexandria. His men began to take control of Palestine and Cyprus, where more coins appear, supporting the consuls in Carthage. With the sea now relatively clear of imperial shipping, Heraclius was ready to make his move. Again sailing with imperial troops and allied moors, Heraclius's fleet headed for Constantinople in the summer of 610. We aren't sure of the route he took, but the conjecture is that he went via Sicily, Crete, and Thessalonica, 
arriving at Abydos, a city at the entrance to the Hellespont, in September. Wherever Heraclius landed, he seems to have encountered no resistance, and may even have gained new recruits. Perhaps men really did hate the emperor, and were happy to recognize Heraclius's authority. I'm sure Focus's lack of legitimacy meant men weren't willing to stick their neck out for him when an armada came calling on their port. And of course, many must have just seen which way the wind was blowing, and decided to get in with the new emperor in hopes of being remembered later on. By October, Heraclius had arrived at Constantinople. A detachment of the imperial fleet engaged him, but were defeated near the port of Sophia. Heraclius's troops landed outside the city on the 4th of that month. Inside the city, chaos reigned. Perhaps to his credit, Phocas hadn't recalled any more troops from the east and had to rely on the excubitors and the blues and greens to defend him. The latter were at each other's throats, of course, and the greens set fire to the area near the harbour of Theodosius. Priscus wisely feigned illness and ordered the excubitors to guard him in his suburban mansion, leaving Phocas undefended in the palace. When Bonossus fled his post on the walls, the Greens found him and killed him. With their blood up, the crowds lynched Dementiolus, and then palace officials turned on Phocas and dragged him to Heraclius's ship. Although the conversation which comes down to us probably didn't happen, I thought you'd like to hear it. The bound Phocas was dragged onto the deck in front of Heraclius, who sneered, Is it thus? that you have governed the empire? And Phocas, from one usurper to another, replied, Will you govern it better? Phocas was then chopped up, either quickly or slowly, depending on whose version you go by. His head was paraded around on a stick, and his body burnt by the mob. He was about 63 years old, and had ruled the empire for eight pretty disastrous years. As I said in the previous episode, Phocas may have turned to torture and murder to maintain power, but he had little choice given the coup attempts he faced. His handling of the Persians was inadequate, but again the rebellion against Maurice was bound to split loyalties and leave the army vulnerable at least for a time, while the change of regime played out. To some extent, the major Persian breakthrough only came when troops had to be sent south to suppress the Heraclean revolt, and without Egypt, focus was doomed anyway. Hopefully, over the course of the podcasts, I've made it clear that focus was not the reason for the empire's dire situation. Justinian expanded needlessly. Yersinia destroyed prosperity. Justin II foolishly renewed war with Persia, and Tiberius recruited more soldiers than could be comfortably paid for. A highly competent and legitimate ruler in Maurice had just about held the empire together. By rebelling against him, the army of Thrace had pushed the empire off a cliff. It's doubtful they understood the strategic danger of their actions, when Maurice, very unreasonably from their point of view, asked them to spend the winter away from home. Could Phocas have done a better job as emperor? Probably yes, but it's doubtful that he could have achieved much more than he did.
Heraclius, then, was crowned emperor by Patriarch Sergius on the 5th of October, 610. Immediately afterwards, the bishop also performed a marriage ceremony between the emperor and his betrothed, Fabia, the daughter of a wealthy African landowner, would now become Eudocia, and she was then crowned empress. The Senate were there to approve the act so that Heraclius could be said to have been proclaimed by the Senate and people, an important step toward legitimacy after Phocas won his crown with the power of the sword. But let's not forget that Heraclius was a usurper, just like Phocas. The new emperor did have two advantages that his predecessor lacked. He had experience of imperial rule from his time in Carthage, and he was a member of the aristocratic class. The latter fact certainly pleased the Senate and the imperial bureaucracy, who were expecting an end to the brutality and paranoia that had swirled around the palace for the last few years. The new emperor had also shown daring and a mastery of strategy in seizing the throne. The decision to take control of Egypt made perfect sense, and the attack by sea avoided all of Phocas's armies in the east. Heraclius didn't know, though, that Phocas's navy would produce such an anemic response. The amphibious assault took courage, and took Phocas by surprise. Those traits would serve the emperor well, but they wouldn't help Heraclius in the short term. Having ridden to the rescue, Heraclius was about to oversee disasters worse than any that Phocas had been responsible for. Just like the man he'd overthrown, Heraclius's first order of business was to face down the men commanding the armies in the east. They were being led, of course, by men loyal to Phocas. So as news of the coup left the city, Heraclius waited anxiously for how it would be greeted. The one area of the empire he didn't have to worry about was Africa. Heraclius Sr. received the news that his son's mission had been a success with much rejoicing. The emperor's father then disappears from the historical record, suggesting that not long after, he passed away. At this stage, there were only two Roman field armies out in the east. One was guarding Syria, and the other was stationed on the Armenian border. These would have been conglomerations of all the troops Phocas had sent out. So mixtures of the army of the east, of Armenia, of Thrace and Illyricum, and the Praecentals. This discombobulation, this mixing of formations from different armies, was now a major issue. As we looked at in the episode on the Strategicon, Roman armies were trained to fight in complex formations. To merge large armies, particularly during war, would cause problems for unit formation and cohesion. Thanks to the Civil War, these two large forces were going to get new commanders and probably new senior officers, further reducing their effectiveness. In Syria, Nicetus arrived to take charge and apparently met little resistance. However, in Anatolia, the army was commanded by Comentiolus, Phocas's brother, who was stationed in Ancyra. He naturally wanted revenge and made plans to march on Constantinople. But fortunately for the empire, 
during the winter of 610, some of his officers got together and killed him. Again, it may have been men looking to win Heraclius's favour, but I'd hope that some of them made the case that if they continued the civil war, then they might as well just hand the east over to the Persians. When the good news arrived, Heraclius dispatched Priscus to take charge of the army in Anatolia. It seems to have been the larger of the two field armies, and Priscus was now the empire's senior general. Heraclius also sent ambassadors to Kusro. They made the case that Maurice had been avenged, and that the new emperor was more than willing to talk peace. But the king of kings knew he was on the brink of something special. He had just won the most impressive series of victories in centuries, and a new emperor in Byzantium didn't change much as far as he was concerned. As soon as winter gave way to spring in 611, the two unbeaten Persian armies were on the move. Priscus and Nicetus were still organizing their men and were caught flat-footed. Shahin marched swiftly to the Cappadocian capital Caesarea and occupied it. Meanwhile, Shavaraz went straight for Antioch, before Nicetus could get anywhere near him. As the Persian army advanced on the city, it fell into anarchy. The Jews attacked the Christians, the Blues and Greens attacked one another, and everyone else. The city's defences were overwhelmed with ease, and once again, the Persians marched into Antioch to do as they pleased. Kusro had clearly given instructions to attempt the conquest of Syria. It seems Shahin was sent to keep the western Byzantine army bottled up in Anatolia, while Shavaraz split his forces and captured the nearby cities of Apamea and Amisa. He also sent thousands of Byzantine prisoners back to Persian territory, in part as booty, but perhaps also to prevent an easy restoration of the status quo should the Byzantines retake the area. By summer, the Byzantines were ready to counterattack. Nicetus marched on Antioch, but Shavaraz came out to meet him near Emesa. They fought an indecisive battle, which did force the Persians to retreat, but gave the Byzantines no chance of retaking any cities. Parts of Syria were now in Persian hands, and there was nothing the Byzantines could do. Syria, that Pompey had brought into the empire some 550 years earlier and hadn't been controlled by the Persians since before Alexander the Great. Meanwhile, Priscus decided that if Shahin wanted Caesarea, he could have it. Setting up a long siege, Priscus's plan was to trap the Persians in the city all winter and starve them into making a mistake. If he could capture or destroy their whole army, it would be the decisive counter-strike that the empire needed. Khusro would be forced to recall Shavaraz and hand back Syria. Back in the capital, Heraclius was busy trying to cement and legitimize his authority. His primary methods of ensuring this were religion and family. During the civil war, Heraclius had been keen to stress that God was on his side. He fixed icons to the ships in his fleet as he sailed from Carthage to Constantinople, and he continued to stress his piety now that he was emperor. He was keen to take part in public ceremonies and church processions. 
A column that Focus had just erected had a cross put on top of it. Local holy men were invited to dine with the emperor. He wanted to be seen to be doing God's work, and perhaps just to be seen, to become familiar to the people of the capital and begin to build legitimacy that way. I should stress that as far as we know, Heraclius was a committed Christian, but it's also clear that he knew it did no harm to emphasize that fact. In terms of family, we've already seen the very important role that Nicetus had played so far. As with many great partnerships in Roman history, to have your trusted cousin in charge of Egypt and Syria was vital to the stability of the new regime. Meanwhile, at home, Heraclius made his own brother Theodorus, the Curo Pilates, the man in charge of the imperial palace. Appointing family members was a sensible precaution, but it was his children that Heraclius used to try and establish his rule with the people. His marriage to Eudocia was a fertile one, and within two years the emperor had a daughter, Epiphania, and a son named Heraclius Constantine. Both were paraded through the streets in carriages, his daughter crowned in a church, his baby boy hailed in the Hippodrome. The emperor wanted everyone to see that a happy, healthy new dynasty was putting down roots. When winter became spring in 612, all eyes turned to Caesarea. Shahin had spent the winter plotting his breakout from the Byzantine siege, and his time had not been wasted. Despite Priscus's preparations, the Persians exploded out of the city, broke through the lines, and made it back to Persian territory, largely unscathed. It was a huge missed opportunity for the Byzantines, and a potential blow to the authority of the new emperor. It's not clear whether Priscus had been at fault, or whether Heraclius simply chose to make a scapegoat of him. Either way, the general was invited to come back to Constantinople that autumn for the baptism of the emperor's son. Once there, Heraclius brought Priscus before a meeting of the church, senate, and deems, and accused him of insulting the emperor, and therefore God. Heraclius struck him across the face with a book, and had him tonsured on the spot, and sent off to his retirement in a monastery. The emperor quickly offered generous terms to Priscus's household guard to keep them from rebelling. Whether or not Priscus treated the emperor poorly, as the histories claim, we don't know, but this piece of political theatre was a shrewd move on Heraclius's part. The blame for the military failure was placed on Priscus's shoulders, and with his removal, the only potential rival for the office of emperor was gone as well. But despite this political success, Heraclius had just watched the military position in the east deteriorate even further, and to his west, news of more Slavs crossing the Danube trickled in all summer. Heraclius to the rescue? Not really. In two weeks' time, things can only get worse for the Byzantines as their empire begins to crumble around them. Thank you for listening, and as ever, if you want to see images of the emperors and their deeds, like the Facebook page, or visit thehistoryofbyzantium.com.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.